We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Lots of my witnesses talk about being a parent and how it makes their life meaningful. So when my producer, Michael Dooney, and his wife, Christy, told me they were expecting a baby, I thought it would be a great opportunity to speak to a couple whose lives were being transformed and to dig into what makes being a parent so meaningful. At the same time, I thought you might be interested in meeting some of the team who make this podcast with me. Fortunately for all of us, Michael and Christy have agreed to be interviewed. Their daughter Elsie has arrived into the world a little later than expected. They've recovered from the whole experience and they're my witnesses today on The Meaningful Life. Before we start, let me tell you a bit more about them. Michael is 40, as well as producing this podcast and hosting his own called Subtext and Discourse about the art world. He's a gallery owner. Christy is 37 and she's a school counsellor working with four to 18-year-olds. And Elsie is, I'm thinking, about six weeks old. Am I right about that? Oh, five weeks in one day. <laughs> five weeks in one day. They all count at this point, don't they? <laughs> yeah. And they all live here in Berlin. So how are both of you doing? We're doing pretty good, actually. I think we were a bit apprehensive, obviously, in terms of what everyone else kind of tells you about having a, a child. But I think she's actually been pretty good. So I think so. Compared to some of the horror stories when people say, look forward to no sleep <laughs> yeah. and everything else. For the most part, she's actually quite good. She does let us sleep at night sometimes, which is nice. So. <laughs> it's a luxury, and that is. she's actually here sort of resting at this precise moment. So we're not quite certain whether she will join us or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's the nature of life now, isn't it? It is. And she's not had the best morning. So yeah. So becoming a parent makes you think about your own parents and your childhood. So tell me about your childhoods and your parents. Do you want to go first? You can. Well, I think Christy and I probably had quite different childhoods in the sense that Christy's extended family is from and live in Australia, whereas my parents emigrated to Australia from the UK in 1975. So I only grew up with my direct family. Obviously, they're my siblings. So I didn't have a childhood, say, surrounded by cousins and aunts and uncles and things like that. And we often lived as well out in the countryside. So we didn't have a lot of other kids running and playing in the street and things like that. It was just friends from school, I suppose. And Christy, so you have lots of cousins and brothers and sisters. Tell, tell me about your family. I'd say I'm a pretty typical kind of Australian. I've got a brother and a sister and I've got quite a few cousins. And I suppose a lot of my childhood memories is just us being down at the beach and going to my cousin's house and very much always surrounded by family and yeah, being out in the sunshine. So it's a bit different compared to <laughs> Germany as well. Uh, I suppose I'm used to yeah, kind of having a big family and a lot of people around a lot of the time and, and a lot of friends as well. And this must make you sort of long to have your own mother here, becoming a, a mother yourself. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose now I don't know what that would be like because I haven't experienced that either. But, well, I suppose being closely kind of connected with family, it is quite difficult. Just in general, also just being an expat, being away from everyone. I think I've always really struggled with that. 
definitely through the motherhood stuff, I suppose she would help and obviously give you tidbits and, and help out in general as well. Like even now I'm really appreciating having a shower for, you know, <laughs> like going to the toilet is a luxury, like as in not having to rush back and is she okay and everything like that. So I think that we've definitely missed out on that. Yeah. Been lucky. I think that I've, we've both been working from home. So at least we've got each other for support. Whereas usually you would have your parent there. And I think even a few years ago, because my sister lives in London, my mum flew over and she was with her for the first few months. And that was a huge help. When you have your mum there, it makes it a lot easier because you kind of got that familiarity and you've got that reassurance. And it always seems easier for our parents. They're like, oh, you know, I don't know why you're so stressed out. Don't worry, it's yeah. fine. <laughs> but I guess they, you like with everything, you forget all of the bad things and you just remember how, oh, no, it's good. It's really great when they're this size. So... Yeah, but I don't know if as well they have a different mentality to what yeah, we have. They're a bit to get on with it. <laughs> in a way, we're the generation that have sort of taken in the whole Freudian idea 100%. And the Freudian idea is that your childhood impacts on who you become. And in particular, with attachment theory, that the bond between baby and caregivers is so strong that it impacts our relationships with everybody going forward. Now, that's quite a burden to hold. I wonder what it's like for you, Christy, because you've obviously studied child development and working with children. You know how important that bond is. So how does that impact on you being a mother now? Yeah, well, absolutely. I'm a lot more observational. I've also worked quite extensively with disabilities as well. So I suppose I'm probably overanalyzing things a little bit too much as well, which is kind of interesting. Give me an example of how you've overanalyzed. I mean, I suppose every mum's going to be super anxious and I suppose I have that plus. She's so little at the moment that... um, we were worried, I think, at first that she wasn't getting enough stimulation and we are like, oh yeah, we need oh, to make sure true. there's a lot <laughs> happening around her so that her brain can be activated. And I think it's too much for her, actually. We have to <laughs> lose. <laughs> she can't really calm herself down. No, so. I was worried she was, like, I, I was concerned that she wasn't sleeping, but then I was also concerned when she was awake that she wasn't getting enough stimulation, but now she can't. We feel like we've overstimulated her or something because yeah. she, she's not sleeping very well at all. And we have to put like this little sheet over her so that she can't really see much around just so that she can actually calm because I think she gets too excited with stimuli. Yeah, she's quite active. And I think, I suppose because babies don't have that awareness yeah, yet. on and off. So anytime anything new comes into a field of view, she's like, oh, what is that? And you can see her little eyes. She's like, oh, I need to sleep. But there's new things. <laughs> yeah. I need to keep looking and discovering. <laughs> Yeah, that has been one. But we've learnt to say, okay, settle down. It's going to be okay. (laughs) She's breathing. She's doing well. She's doing everything she's supposed to be doing. So let's not overparent as well. But that also could be, which I also am aware of not wrapping up in cotton wool. But but I definitely think like the anxieties that all mums have, I definitely have experienced. But we've been pretty good though, I think. We haven't been overly anxious. (laughs) Has it made you look at your father differently now, Michael? Now that you're a father too. We were sort of talking about it a little bit. I I think the gender roles from that period, from the 70s and the 80s, were a lot different to the way that they are perceived now. I guess I've not really thought about it, actually. I've not really thought how different is it for my dad and for me. Well, what is interesting, though, is we we did a birthing class and the males (laughs) were the most anxious and the most inquisitive. All the women were like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. So this is so talking about like gender roles compared yeah. to what we would expect our fathers to perhaps yeah. behave. But 
yeah, these guys. It was so it was really interesting yeah. that they were definitely the ones that were asking the questions and then they felt they were asking about how they can relieve their anxieties around yeah. the birth and how they can support. It was really interesting that it was so, it was very male-centric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't expect that actually. No, so definitely from that perspective, those definite roles of what the male is meant to do, I mm-hmm. think has seems to have changed. Yeah, that was definitely a very interesting observation. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's as well. I noticed this during the birth and then even throughout, you want to be there to support your partner. And there's not a lot you can do really because a lot of it's happening inside your body Mm. or there's a lot of it happening to the baby or to whatever. You can't do much. Okay, you can go to work and you can earn money and you can make sure that everything else is stable. But those very specific pregnancy, childbirth and initial stages, there's very little that you can do that's helpful. All you can do is be there and supportive. That's it. You can be an emotional support and just be a rock, but you can't say, oh, look, you have a break from feeding. Just put her on my boob. You can't do that. You can't say, look, oh, just have a break from labour. I can take over from here. Like all of those things. You yeah, that, that would have been nice. <laughs> I'll tap out now. <laughs> yeah. And so when you see your child in pain or your wife in pain, you can't step in and say, look, I'll take the pain now. It's okay. Like, you can't do that. And that's, you really felt it with the birthing yeah. group because all the other guys were like, what do I do? What do I do? Like, yeah. you know, I don't like seeing my wife suffering, but I can't. There's nothing I can do to prevent that. I just have to stand by and watch it happen. Yeah, they struggled with that. <laughs> was it an automatic choice to become parents or was it a big decision? Well, for me, it was always, even though I really, I love my work and I certainly cherish the children that I work with and the people that I work with, I've always been very, I want to have a family, I want to have a family. So work has always been important, but it's not like I'm like a big career person because for me, yeah, personally, I've had that need or I have that, if I even think about my work, that compassionate side of me, I think really, or that empathic side of me really kind of takes over most of my life. So I think this was like a natural progression for me. But Michael, it wasn't so much for you. No, I think, and it's, I mean, I don't like to admit it, but I wouldn't say that for me, having a family was a natural impulse. And I don't know if I'm a bit pessimistic towards the state of the world. And I think, do I want to introduce a new life into the world that we're living? But at the same time, since Elsie's arrived, I couldn't imagine our lives without her. Even you've said, I think you're surprised at how I've kind of just switched to being yeah, a father now. I'm not, I'm not surprised. I'm just, I'm happy. Yeah. Perhaps I, I like you. Yeah. You seem you're super good at it. Sometimes I'm like, here, take it. You're better at like coming here and doing all that stuff than I am. So, yeah. but I think that's also surprised me because I never felt an affinity towards children. And when I, if people had babies around, I was never one of the people going, oh, let me see your little baby. I didn't have that urge the way that a lot of other people naturally do. So it wasn't like a, oh, I really want to have children. And other friends of mine are, other guys I know, they can't wait till, you know, they have a family and things like that. I don't know why it was never on the radar for me, mm. but. But it could also be like how you're saying that maybe because you haven't grown around, up around like a large family and those kind of things. So. Yeah. But you've been together for 16 years, so it's been quite a long journey to parenthood. What happened? I mean, we weren't that young. We were in our 20s still when we got together, but maybe with our approach to a lot of different things, because we can be a bit pragmatic at times and think, okay, I want to get this done with my job or I'd like to do these things first. And maybe even also, because I didn't have this natural desire to have children, it wasn't prioritised. And I think ultimately it was just, we were getting old, older <laughs> and like, okay, well, we're in our thirties now. If we don't have children soon, we're going to miss the boat kind of thing. 
And it made it easier, I think, living here. In Australia, I think we're quite prescribed about life stages and that when you get to this age, you should do this. When you get to this age, you should do that. Whereas here, going to different open air celebrations and things like that, you would see people there with their babies and their children and you'd still have your life and go out and do things. Whereas in Australia, it's very much, well, why are you going out now? You've got children, you should be at home or you should be doing this. And I think that made it easier to accept that, you know what, we don't have to lose our personalities in exchange for having children. Like you can still do both. So that- Yeah, that's def- been nice to that observe made it a that. lot easier. I think the Europeans in general are better at that. Whereas in Australia, we're very like, you have to get married. And then when do we buy a house? Now we just always buy a house just throughout life. Like yeah. it's not like <laughs> there's not any stage. You just, as soon as you start making money, you need to buy a house and then you have your child and then you stay in your house and you bring up that child and you don't go and do any fun things. Like I, I kind of feel like it's like that. Cause even when I worked in my country town in the North Western Australia, I remember seeing some of the mums out. And even I, I remember thinking, what are they doing out? You know, <laughs> I was like, How, that's terrible. I was like in my twenties. I was like, so terrible. I would even think that, but yeah. we kind of have this perception. And I think maybe it is like the societal pressures are different in Berlin or maybe any capital or city, city really. Yeah. Any city maybe is the same that you have a lot more diversity and you don't feel the same pressures as you would if you were in a in a smaller town or you're in your where you're used to growing up. The reason why we also took so long was because we have had infertility issues. So yeah, like I had an ectopic pregnancy. So that's when the egg gets stuck in the fallopian tube. So now I don't know if this is common practice, but this is what they said at the hospital. They used to just clear it out, I think. So just take out the egg. And there's no way that you can have a viable pregnancy when you have an ectopic pregnancy. Mm. So they used to clear it out. But in my situation, they cut out the, it must have grown quite a bit. So they took out my fallopian tube. So then now I only have one side. Then after that had happened, we started having IVF because I was over 35 or I was 35 at the time. And then we had quite a few rounds of IVF. And then one of them progressed to a few, I don't know how many, it was a few weeks or like a, I don't know if it was like two months or something. That one they found that the heartbeat had stopped. So that one I ended up having to have an abortion with that one as well. Mm-hmm. And then we had another two cases where they had only progressed a certain way and then had kind of come out. So in, in all in total, well, I had four miscarriages. So, yeah, we've kind of gone through the reason why it has been so long as well because we've had a five-year journey of just trying to get pregnant. And I think that, that that perception of pregnancy, we've definitely changed a lot because we've yeah, mm. experienced a lot of loss. Even going through the IVF cycle was like pretty full-on. I mean, I had one where you have all the injections and then they, they do like the egg transfer and all those kind of things. So the, the whole process was a bit traumatic. But um, Elsie actually ended up being non-IVF. She just... Yeah, she was somehow naturally conceived. Yeah, so, so that was like... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to the dismay of the fertility centre. Yeah, yeah, they weren't happy. <laughs> yeah. The fertility centre that wasn't happy that their clients were having a baby. Yeah. No, they were like, oh, no, well, oh you're already pregnant. They weren't <laughs> happy. They want to have the money through, obviously. How has that changed the two of you? Well, I think just in general, our awareness around pregnancy, it was also difficult for us leading up to or throughout that period because a lot of people around us got married and then pregnant immediately. And a lot of people do just seem to get pregnant at the drop of a hat. 
But there are a lot of people, and obviously we're within that minority, who have a lot of difficulties getting pregnant. And it's not just a matter of the one time you don't use protection, you get pregnant. There's like a very small window of time that you're, I guess, that the egg is the most fertile. I think there does seem to be as well a lot of different factors with certain things within your diet and they don't know whether or not your mood or how you're feeling also affects it. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of different factors. A lot of them I think you can't quantify. So even when we were getting a lot of the testing and everything done, they were saying, well, everything looks fine. We don't know why you're not getting pregnant. So then we're like, well, what are we doing wrong? I think the reality that we went through isn't that uncommon. And when we look online, there are a lot of other women and a lot of other couples really struggling to get pregnant as well. I've tried this, I've tried that, I've gone through this many rounds of IVF. And then they'll find out, oh, I just, I didn't have enough vitamin C in my diet. And as soon as I took these tablets and everything was okay. And it's just, if the stars haven't aligned, then you might not get pregnant at that moment. But I think the awareness around the emotional weight of have we got pregnant? Yes or no. And then getting pregnant and then losing the pregnancy or the pregnancy not being viable. And that's also a huge, I mean, you have, you, you grieve. It's a trauma. The, it's yeah. a trauma and you yeah. grieve through the, through the process because you think, oh, is this the one? And even, even for a long time with this pregnancy, like with Elsie, as we kind of got the next month and the next month and the next month, it's like, is this okay? Like, is it going to work this time? Because we've had so many other losses. People can lose them after six months or they can have a stillbirth and like all of these other things. And like really up until the point that she was born and she came out and she was breathing, it's like, oh, I've seen her now. We know that we have a healthy little girl. So you were almost holding your breath for nine months. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And my friends kept on saying, Chris, you can start celebrating now. I'm like, no, I can't. Like, I don't know. Like, it's a really, yeah, I suppose unless you... Yeah, unless you go through it, I suppose, I think people struggled to understand it, but it was even, I was laughing, well, it was not so funny, but every time I'd go to the gynecologist, I would always just stare at the face of the doctor rather than looking at the screen. And he was just, every time he'd be like, look at the screen, as in you're looking at the baby, but because I'd seen the face of the doctor every time going, oh, actually, no, it's not viable, this one. And I, that one stuck with me, That I think the one where I had the abortion, and I just kept on staring at his face. But yeah, it's obviously it's been quite traumatic and through the process I hated seeing pregnant women and I didn't want to hear about anyone getting pregnant because it was just so, and it was for me as well that I got to a point actually because it was such a long process where I'd been like, okay, so what happens now if I can't have a child, then I have to reevaluate everything and what my meaning is within my life. If I can't have a child, then okay, then I had the A, B and C. So the A was we might eventually get pregnant. The B was perhaps we can adopt. And then C was we don't have a child and I focus on other things. And I kind of started going down the C kind of avenue because we're also quite creative. So I do illustrations and I thought, okay, fine, I'll focus on that. And that'll be how I kind of progress forward in my life. And I've had friends that have kind of done the same sort of thing where they've struggled and they were getting around to the idea of this other avenue. But um, actually all of us have ended up eventually, yeah. how many years later, getting pregnant. And that's the thing I think that as women we also can recognise or I hope that we start recognising that we don't have to be mothers as well. I definitely feel that a lot of us can't and I think there's a lot of pressure being put on us. And There's like a, that movement towards women not having children and I think that that's really important for us to celebrate that and not to question as well because we're always asked, so when are you going to have kids? It's like, well, I'm not going to have kids. Like, yeah, you know, there might be a reason we've not had them yet. Just all these societal pressures that are put upon females which are just 
yeah, quite frustrating. I mean, I never asked anyway, but I'm less inclined now if people haven't had children to say, oh, why haven't you had children yet? Are you thinking of having children? Well, when are you having children? Because you don't know. And I think it can be a harmless question, but for some people it can be a a really loaded question. If you've already been through that trauma of IVF and struggling to get pregnant and you finally come out the other end and decided that part of my life that I thought I was going to have, I have to reevaluate my outlook and I'm going down this new path. Every time somebody says, oh, when are you going to have children? You're digging up those old wounds and it's that's really hard. Yeah, absolutely. That's really hard yeah, to don't, deal don't with. Don't ask that question. It's horrible. It's a horrible <laughs> question. what does this do to your relationship? Because a lot of people find that all the pain can quite easily get thrown at your partner because you're sort of in this together, but sometimes you're also very much on your own journeys with this. So what was the impact on your relationship of this difficult period? For like reevaluating what was going to happen and things like that? No, just fighting, for example, or being <laughs> angry with each other, or, you know, you're not doing enough to help me, or you're overreacting and all of this stuff. I mean, we definitely had those periods, certainly, and we would have thought about certain things. Even like, okay, IVF is expensive, probably not being in the best financial situation, but my eggs are getting old, so we've got to Mm. do something. We would have thought a little bit over those kind of issues. But in a more positive realm, I would say that it's perhaps made us more resilient. And the fact that it is just the two of us here as well, I would say that definitely going through and it has been such a journey because it has been like a five-year journey of loss Mm -hmm. so even just emotionally and I know that sometimes you've found it hard to understand where I've come from in terms of how I've really taken it and I haven't coped in the best way kind of isolating myself a little bit so you've had to watch me go through that and you haven't necessarily felt it in the same kind of emotional impact that I have. No I don't think I haven't at all and I think probably from other experiences throughout my life and learning to let things go and accept if that is the way that it's going to be, then I just have to find peace with that. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to function. There were, I think, different periods where I was trying to say, look, it's going to be okay. Like, we'll try again. Let's just go through the next cycle. But you got your head bit off. Yeah, you really didn't want to hear that from me. I was like, no, like I'm frustrated. I'm pissed off. And why is it so hard for us? Yeah. And I'm there trying to be like, it's all right. You know, we can do all these other things. We can, I don't know, move to an island or we can go do some (laughs) other thing. Like if we can't have children, we can just go off the grid or become activists. Like whatever it is, like all of these different fantasies. If we're not going down a traditional route, then let's really not go down a traditional route. We can shave our heads and whatever else. But yeah, I think that kind of emotional grief and that's, Potentially losing that part of what you think you have or could have, I struggled to comprehend, I think. So how did the birth go? Because you were a little late, weren't you? She was. Yeah. Yes, it was. In Germany, you you go 10 days and then they induce you. So I was hoping not to be induced, but I was. Mm -hmm. It actually wasn't that bad. I think the process here is a bit more natural compared to some others when they inject you with oxytocin, I think they do it in other countries. But yeah, it was really frustrating with her being so late, actually. I really struggled with that. I mean, I didn't think she was going to come on the due date because a lot of the people that I know as well have their babies quite early. And I actually didn't realise in my family, they all come late. I didn't know that. So every day that went by, I got more and more frustrated. And I was actually doing the hypnobirthing. It's it's like a birthing kind of meditative. I think it's applying meditation to birthing. Wow. We learned through the birthing course and with all the preparation that we were doing that 
believe it or not, the body is actually designed to give birth and to carry a child and let it out into the world. Really? <laughs> Who would have thought it? I know, but our minds override that. And I think because we always try to control our bodies, I'm trying to control this pain or I'm going to control my hunger or whatever it is from our bodies. Childbirth is the same and your body's trying to naturally let something happen and, and brains are often fighting against that. So with the hypnobirthing, it was trying to have that sort of disconnect that you occasionally have with meditation where you sort of transcend the pain and the different feelings in your body. But I think because she was arriving late, we're just getting like, oh, is it going to be today? Is it going to be today? Getting more and more frustrated and less and less I was not practicing my meditation because I was getting so angry. <laughs> I think it's, give me the drugs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I was like that actually, which I did not want to be. Um, yeah. But, yeah, leading up to it, we weren't in the headspace we thought we would have been if I would have. Uh, I can, I can see earlier. candles and chanting and I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've lost the candles and chanting. <laughs> well, I, the hypnobirthing actually, so they used this gel when I was induced and it worked really quickly actually. So I, the contraction started and the doctor came in because they put you on a, a CTG machine where they monitor the contractions and the baby's heart rate. And the doctor came in and she could just see the waves of the contraction on the machine. And she was like, oh, you're so calm. I'm just like, well, I've been doing my hypnobirthing. So that was the point that it actually did help the very Good. start. <laughs> but that was it. That After that, I was, I was useless. Yeah. <laughs> I kept on saying to Michael, I'm like, I'm terrible at this. Well, I was really mean to him. So I apologise for that. <laughs> How were you mean to him? Because I was like, don't touch me. Like he was trying to like calm me and I was very, I knew I would be kind of like that. I did, I think a lot for me, even I suppose how I deal with things is I internalise and I just want to cope with it and get it done. And then after maybe I might be okay, but I internalise and that's how I deal with things. So I, I, that definitely came out the birth. And I, I knew I was being mean to him at the time, but I just couldn't help it because it was, just, <laughs> it was painful. <laughs> And um, what was it like from your point of view, Michael? Well, I didn't know what to expect, actually. And I suppose we have all these ideas of how a birth is going to be. Well, you hear people's different accounts of it and they say, oh, it was this magical thing. Or once I saw the baby crowning or when this happened, I entered another space and then I realised now I'm a father. It was really quite a, um, I would describe it as an ordeal. I think there were points as well that it could be quite traumatic because like I was saying before with the other guys in the birth prep group, when you're seeing your partner go through this and not being able to do anything about it, like that's really tough. There's no way you can intervene or do anything to help make it better for them. Kind of leading through it and leading through it, one of the doctors came through. She was like, okay, so we can see on the monitor now that the baby's getting um, distressed because distressed the heart rate had gone up and it was on the machine. So they came through and they said, look, we've got to try to get her out. And then, no, then a second doctor came in. So we had two doctors. I mean, I can still see it in my mind now where you were lying on the bed. I was sat to your right. And then there was the two doctors there. There's a pediatrician in the background. There was the midwife as well. I was sort of just taking direction from the doctors saying, look, this is what Christy needs to be doing. So I'm trying to feed the information to Christy to keep her calm. But then I'm also seeing everything else that's happening. And it was like watching, I suppose, a lot of different events happening in parallel. There was a point where they didn't know if it was going to be a cesarean. And I think she went from being distressed to not stressed enough. So then the baby relaxed and then she sort of went back a little bit. 
And then the doctor could see her head and she's like, look, I can see her head and I can see her hair. And she's like, oh, okay, we can get her out. And then I think they thought, okay, what we need to do is Christy needs to try to push her down a bit and then we need to catch her because they had to use the vacuum to pull her out. And then that's, I think, when they needed the other doctor there. So there was one doctor like pressing on Christy's stomach, the other one like pulling the baby out. I think they had to make a few incisions. It sounds like carry-on birthing to me. (laughs) (laughs) You expect Hattie Jakes to come up and say, ooh, matron. Yeah, it was really intense, actually. And I think... I had no idea. Yeah. I think when I was saying to Christy afterwards, didn't you remember this when this happened? She's like, no. It's like, it's probably better that you didn't remember, actually, because it was... I was in my own little world. Yeah. It was really quite intense. And even when she came out, I'm like, oh, Christy, look, she's here, look. And then Christy's like, oh, what's going on? <laughs> like, <laughs> But I wasn't drugged. No, yeah, I think the drugs, was- was, yeah, the drugs had already worn off by then. But it was... It wasn't this dream scenario that a lot of people describe when they say, oh, you know, it was so beautiful. We we're bringing a new life into the world. It's really heavy and there's a lot of blood. And <laughs> So complete this sentence. Nobody ever told us dot, dot, dot. I actually didn't realise that actually we don't have much control. So with the contractions and the hypnobirthing, they call them surges to make it seem a bit nicer, but that our body is actually just naturally like your uterus does all the work and pushing the child out. I actually didn't realise that that was just like if our brains got out of the way, we actually would be able to give birth a lot easier or we wouldn't have as much pain. I was clenching one point. They're like, you need to stop doing that because the kid can't come out. Um, <laughs> I was like, it's so much pain. But definitely, yeah, that as I was researching or going through with the hypnobirthing stuff, that it kind of made me feel a bit more empowered as a I'm a part of something as females or that this is what our body is meant to do, that it isn't actually this cognitive, you're meant to sit there and you push the child out, even though at the end, yes, there is mm-hmm. that part of it. And for me it was. But even then you don't necessarily have to push because your body does it. But obviously with medical interventions so you need almost to. Almost nobody told you you have to sort of get out of your own way almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, no one even told us that. Even when we actually really did, even when we did the birthing course, I didn't feel like that was such a huge, it was definitely from me researching and finding that information out and just reading that, hey, it's our brain that needs to just switch off and let your body do it. I wasn't that scared of the birth, to be honest. I mean, I I wasn't that scared, I think, and that really helped me. I definitely think having that awareness of what my body was doing. So I think for me it was really important that I actually did do quite a bit of research into what birth really is and how your body manages it. Yeah, for me that was really helpful. So, Michael, nobody ever told us dot, dot, dot. I mean, I don't want to say the same thing as Christy. A female body is designed to do this and that you realise, yeah, how much your brain gets in the way. I think what a role the natural process takes, maybe. And I think because we're so used to everything being with medical intervention. And if you look at the animal kingdom, other mammals give birth to live children or live Hopefully not children. Not children, yeah. (laughs) But all the time. And it's not a drama for them. But for us, it is this ordeal. And it's like, oh, now you've got to push and it's going to be painful and it's going to be all these different things. But nobody said, well, actually, this is a natural process and you need to somehow kind of engage with your mammal brain and let it happen rather than trying to control it because ultimately you can't control it. So what was it like meeting this new person when you finally realised it was all over? They put her in your arms. What was that experience like? I personally was a bit disconnected. Mm -hmm. They still hadn't stitched me up as well. So I was still... Yeah, you've kind of still legs um, laid. Yeah. (laughs) 
But it was interesting. What I think is quite interesting as well is that they put her on my chest and then she just kind of latched straight away and started sucking on my breast. That was like, wow, she knows how to do that. So that was kind of like a bit of a magical, it's like, oh my goodness, like how does she know how to do that? But that was, yeah, I think I was pretty tired. (laughs) So Yeah, well, I think, no, actually we got up really early because we had to get to the hospital for Christy to be induced. So I think we got up at five o'clock that morning and then eventually we went to the hospital. Christy was induced. She had to stay there. I came back, cleaned up a bit at home. I went back, I think, at six. By the time I got home, I'd had something to eat and then I poured the hot water in my tea as I was about to pour the milk in. Oh, you poor thing. (laughs) I'm just trying to play at the time. (laughs) And then I was was about to have a cup of tea. Then Chrissy's like, you've got to come here now. So then I ran to the hospital and that was maybe, I think, at seven o'clock. And then from that time- We live five minutes from the hospital. we live five minutes from the hospital, yeah. (laughs) It's not very far, but still, I ran the whole way. It's not like you ran for an hour or something. (laughs) But then from that time, she was born at 2.33 in the morning and then we were there until five or six before we left. So we were already awake for 24 hours. So you're already awake for that long. And then Chrissy had been through labour as well. So I think, yeah, by that time she was already exhausted. I think when she arrived as well, I wouldn't say there was like a sudden switch, but you definitely feel like there's an instinctual shift in how you view things. You know, that's our little person. That's a combination of Christy and I and that's we've made that without really even trying. Like she's yeah. grown. <laughs> yeah, that's she's, weird. <laughs> she's grown in your body for nine months and now she's here. She's a living, breathing human being and we need to take care of her. And up until that point, it was always like, what are we even going to do? We've never had children. Like, yeah. We don't know how to look after how to them hold together, it. how to hold her or anything. And it seems like a lot of things you just somehow yeah. instinctively know how to do. That's been Yeah, because of corona as well, Michael couldn't come to the ward with me. So pretty much as soon as the birth happened, we had a few hours. I was was Mm -hmm. thankful that they left us alone for a bit. But then I got wheeled to the ward. I had to stay for two days, which was funny because no one helped me in the hospital. So I don't even know why I was there, to be honest. (laughs) They're like, the the only thing they did was show me, they're like, this is how you put the nappy on. And then, all right, you'll be good for two days, pretty much. And yeah, even with breastfeeding, they didn't help with anything. So I, yeah, honestly, I don't know why I was there. But anyway, I was surprised how much my instincts, and I know my mum had said that as well. She's like, you'll be fine. You know, <laughs> your instincts will kick in. And that's what I've been quite surprised by is that you just go with what your body or what your mind tells you to mm. kind of do. And we've been yeah pretty good with that, actually. Yeah. 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 That's also been quite surprising. Is there a moment sort of recognising her as a sort of, separate being. That she is a separate being, sorry? Yes, in the sense that she's in your body. She has been the concept that you're going to have a baby, that you're going to give birth to another person, and then suddenly they're actually a reality. I don't know, because I'm not a father. Is there a moment when you realise that this is real? This is a person that I'm going to have a relationship with, and you sort of say hello to them, or is that something that happens only in the movies? Or my imagination. (laughs) No, definitely. I think that even when, yeah, just being in the hospital and kind of looking across at her, and I think we've kind of chatted that about she's going to be who she is as well. Like she's parts of us, but well, I suppose we're also looking forward to seeing what she will be like. Like she might not be like either of us. She might not look like either of us, Mm -hmm. you know, but she will be her own little person. So it was a little, there was a part as well, I think, maybe for the first week or two where. Because she'd been inside Christy's body for so long, it's also getting used to her not being inside her body. Yeah. She's like, oh, odd. I kind of miss that feeling yeah, that was having odd. her within me. Yeah. Now when I have like my stomach will make 
movement, I kind of think back to her still being in my stomach, which is kind of odd. So I suppose that's going to take a while for me to get used to not having someone kicking me every two seconds. But it does feel like she's always been here to some extent as well. It's hard to believe it's only been five weeks. Yeah, that's true. And it's even like any kind of big change. It's difficult to remember now what it was like before. It's hard to remember now. Oh, remember when we didn't have Elsie in the house with yeah. us? <laughs> Even though it's only been a really short amount of time. Like now, because we're so accustomed to it and she's with us literally 24 hours of the day, it's hard to think, like, what did we do before this? Or how did we manage before when we didn't have her with us? And it's, I think it's a really positive thing in the sense of our perception of also the world. And I've been thinking about this a bit lately is that how much we've slowed down. You know, it's like when you talk about when you have anxieties, you think in the past and you think in the future rather than the present. And I think that the baby's actually made us, force us to kind of think in the present because I'll sit there and breastfeed for like 40 minutes and just stare at her. I couldn't even imagine doing that, just sitting on the couch for 40 minutes, not really doing a whole lot of anything. So I think there's lots of things about us like that as well, which she has allowed us to kind of shift our mentality a bit and also, yeah, be a bit appreciative. Mm-hmm. Of, of the time that we have with her as well. Yeah. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you become a member of our supporters circle, you have the chance to write in a letter and somebody who's written a letter is getting not just one bite of the cherry, but two, because I used this letter last week when I was talking to Lisa Marciano. And at the very end, there's a sort of crowdsource type of question. Does everyone feel? And so I thought it'd be useful to ask somebody else the very same question. And whereas Lisa was a a mother quite a few years ago, we've got a very present experience of this. So we're going to have two separate approaches on this one. I've just found out that I'm pregnant, but beyond telling my mother and my best friend, I've told nobody. I'm dreading when my partner and I tell his father and his stepmother. Everyone will say, you should be so happy and I'll pretend everything is wonderful. I feel horrible inside because I am lying. The strange thing is that I want this child and to have a family more than anything, but I'm also scared. I don't want my child to look back and think his or her mum is a loser. I don't feel strong and inspiring, like I used to feel at work. Nobody can see how I feel. Most of the time I have no energy and stare at the ceiling and people keep offering wonderful new jobs. I was made redundant recently, but I've turned them all down. I have new job interviews, I don't want to go to them. What will I say if my child asks how I felt when I got pregnant? Does everyone feel amazing when they discover they're having a baby? So, who wants to go first on this? I definitely think that not everyone feels amazing (laughs) when they find out they're going to have a baby or when they're pregnant as well. And I think it's absolutely okay for you to not feel elated and to also be going through whatever life stages or situations you're going through. And that's absolutely okay. As a society, we have this perception of, oh, we have to be happy now or When we look back at things, we can often look at things in a very negative light or a very positive light. I think that when we're pregnant, we're expected to look at it in a very positive perspective. But actually, I don't think that's reality. And I think that we as women also need to be a bit more realistic and communicate that, hey, if you don't feel fantastic and you're also with pregnancy, everyone's completely different. So you might 
be feeling super sick, like physically ill or super tired. And so therefore it's going to play also on your emotions. And there's so many factors to consider. So definitely I think that it's absolutely okay if you don't feel super happy and excited. And it's a journey as well. Yeah, definitely. I think there's these expectations that we should be, and that dreaded word should. And I think it's really important to say there are as many experiences as there are mothers of pregnancy and giving birth. And Mm -hmm. if I interviewed 100 people, I'm sure I would get 100 different answers. Absolutely. And I think that that's not something that's really communicated. I think there's definitely this perception of, oh, yeah, you should be happy. Even to think, you know, how we went through a really difficult time, but obviously I would have been very thankful yeah, I definitely think that it's it's okay. But you were also super scared as well, weren't you? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And scared of the birth, scared of the pregnancy, everything. Yeah, scared of looking after the kid, was scared of how to hold the kid, like all of mm-hmm. these kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. And every experience has a light and a shadow to it. We unfortunately live in a world nowadays that only wants the light and you can't have the light without the shadow. And I think that's really important to remember. And in fact, the more we try and push the light, the stronger the dark actually gets. So it's okay. Any thoughts from you, Michael, on this letter? Well, I think because the letter raises a number of different points. So I guess Christy's said a part of it about leading into the pregnancy, but even that she was saying that she finds herself just looking at the ceiling and she's not motivated and she's not enjoying things that she used to enjoy and she's really worried about things. It does sound a little bit like she's having a bit of a depressive episode or a little bit of a slump in her life in general. That's obviously contributing If you're already having that struggle, having the pregnancy on top of that is going to be an additional mental and emotional strain. And yeah, whether or not it's worthwhile speaking to a therapist or reaching out to somebody else just to kind of get that support and talk about the things because she sounds like she's really concerned about letting anybody know. And I think a lot of us can recognize the experience of when you have a lot of these feelings, they seem a lot worse when they're in your head. And then as soon as you say them to somebody else, and then when you hear them said aloud, you realise, well, actually, it's probably not that bad. And when you're hanging on to a lot of this information and you're ruminating over it, it does become bigger than it really is. And I think sort of working through those different stages, she has a supportive partner. She spoke to her own mum about it. And kind of using those supportive networks that you do have to work through this situation, you will maybe be less concerned with what other people think. Any thoughts, Christy, on how to stop worrying about what other people think? I think it might be particularly a mother thing that mothers are forever comparing themselves with oh, each absolutely. other. Oh, absolutely. Everyone needs to stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of advice that I've been given, it gets a lot. And you do, yeah, you absolutely compare yourself. And I've found that I have, and I've had to stop and pull myself back and kind of remind myself. And even I maybe I have my own little mantra that I say in my head. or Which is what? Share it with us. Yeah, it's, it's okay the way that I'm feeling. And it's just a general kind of statement, I think, that I just think it's I'm dealing with it the best way that I know how to. And even when I'm feeling super anxious about certain things, I even just think she's alive. She's as, as horrible as that maybe that even sounds, but she is, she's okay. Like she's happy. Even, you know, you experience mother's guilt and all these kind of things. I've already had that, I think quite a bit, but you just have to remind yourself when people are giving you advice, you're like, okay, be polite and listen, but that's that person's unique experience. That's not necessarily my experience and I don't need to take that on or I can try that. Also, I don't need to try what they've just said. And again, I can just 
thank them for their advice and just, you know, I, I definitely think we come from the, the British side of things where we have to be polite with certain things. But You need to get a bit of Berlin inside you. And, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> tell them where to go. Absolutely. But, yeah, when you're comparing yourself or when people are giving you unsolicited advice, it is a bit like you just have to remind yourself it's okay and you're doing a good job and trust your instincts as well. I just think there's a plethora of thoughts I've learned to kind of wash through. <laughs> yeah. No, I think definitely the trust in your instincts and listening to how you're feeling because a lot of the time when you are feeling low or when you are worried about all of these things, it's because your body's telling you just to slow down and have a break, Yeah. to not worry so much about it and just take a bit and of time out. we expect to be on 24-7 and actually we're not built to be on 24-7 and I think babies remind us of that, don't they? <laughs> yes. So thank you for being my witnesses today. Has what makes your life meaningful changed through having a baby? Let's have Christy first on this. Well, completely changed now that she's definitely the focus. I also feel that we're cognizant of not completely losing ourselves as well. I mean, I'm also aware of helicopter parents. And <laughs> and this is going to be a shock for you, but she's only passing through. One day she will be listening to this podcast and saying, oh, did you have to say all of that stuff? And she'll be going off to university. I know you're going to find that a shocking idea, but she's only here for a while. She's just passing through. So that is the most shocking thing I can say, isn't it, at this point? It's just impossible to believe that one day she will be 20 years old and asking oh, for the absolutely. keys to the car and off she'll be going. Yeah, the, the focus will definitely be on her. And we're thinking even in our apartment now, there's all these things, it's too small, you know, like um, we have to think about all of these different factors that will impact on how we live our, our lives in general now. And yeah, she, she is the focus, but we still, we still won't lose who we are either. And I think that's a really important factor to consider. And I think that's important for the child's development as well, is that we still have our own identities, but we're all kind of going through it together now, we're going through our life journeys together. And, yeah. and Michael, how has what makes your life meaningful changed? I think you just realise because you do now have another life and another human being that you're responsible for, your priorities change. I guess your meaning or your outlook on life has to shift because your actions don't just affect you anymore. You can't just think, oh, I'll be back in a week, see you later. You can't do that anymore. You have to be here for the child. You need to make sure whatever you're doing, that this little person is going to be okay and you need to look after them. And I think that really is the biggest shift in terms of meaning for me because she's really defenceless. We need to help her eat and help her sleep and help clean her and do everything for her. She can't really care for herself at all. And that's what we're going to have to help her with that for the next I don't know, 18 years <laughs> until she's ready to kind of fly the nest. And have you learned anything new about Christy through this? Well, I always thought that you would be a good mum, mm. so I wasn't surprised. It's really nice to see it and how you are with her. Mm. But yeah, in terms of anything new, yeah, I don't know. Because I think Christy, I've always thought Christy was resilient and that she is a caring and compassionate person. So I knew that once we had a child, that would become the centre of her universe and it, that has happened. So yeah, there hasn't really been anything new. I've not thought, oh, I'm surprised by that. Why have you done that, Christy? Like everything has been... <laughs> and what about you, Christy? Have you learned anything about Michael through this experience? Not necessarily. Like it's the same kind of thing. I know that he's caring and compassionate. I have liked to see him 
he's like taking her well, just in general, actually, when I'm really struggling with her or something like that. Like there was one time when I was on the couch, and this is when um, I was struggling with breastfeeding at the start. At the start, I mean, week five, but maybe week two, we hit a really horrible time, and I was on the couch just crying because I think that's kind of a, a normal thing. Sometimes you just feel that she just won't stop crying. I don't know what to do, and I fed her and I've done everything. And yeah. Michael was really good at just kind of saying, "It's okay. I'll take her. I'll go into the other room." And he kind of instinctually kind of knows himself. So you have your own instincts even. Okay, okay, I was physically crying then. But in general, when I'm feeling a bit stressed out. a clue, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, when I was super stressed out and I just, I, I really appreciate the way that you can kind of just feel it out and go, okay, now's the time that Chrissy just needs like her, her time or some kind of time away from the crying or. Well, because you won't put up your hand for help and sometimes I have to force the help on you. That's why. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you, all right. <laughs> and if you're wondering when you hear the slight murmurs from Elsie that um, she's currently in some kind of sling over Michael <laughs> who's rocking her all this time. So has actually working on The Meaningful Life and listening to all my guests, has that been helpful at all in this whole um, process of this of your life changing so dramatically have you learned anything do you think from my guests that's been helpful for you michael yeah i definitely think that i have it's hard for me now to be on the spot to pinpoint anything specifically but i think you've had a lot of people share a lot of wisdom about how to see the world how to approach situations how to feel about things how to maybe understand that you don't necessarily have control over external factors, but you can control how you approach them. And I think a lot to do with your outlook and general well-being, I think, has been a, an ongoing topic with a lot of the people that you've had. And also the importance of self-care, I think. Yeah, a lot of the time it's always reminding ourselves to look after each other so that we can look after Elsie as well. I suppose there have been things like that, which maybe I've known or I've been reminded of. And I think working on the show has certainly reminded me of those things and kind of reinforced a lot of those ideas that you need to be present, be in the moment and appreciate the things that are happening now and have kind of open expectations, you know, not listen to the universe, but you do need to listen to your unconscious and you need to listen to these things that our conscious mind often overrides. There is somehow an undercurrent there that is trying to guide you and say, look, follow this way and then be open to that and accepting of that. That's a lot easier to go with that flow than it is to try to push against it. Well, thank you for being my guest today and thank you for all the work you've done with the flow of this, uh, <laughs> this, uh, this programme. No, thanks for having us on the show, Andrew. It's been really nice. So in a moment, I'll be asking Christy and Michael about the three things they know to be true, and we'll be looking back at what I've learned and what they've learned from this encounter. If you want to hear that, you have to join our supporters circle because we have Elsie's mouth to feed and this costs. So uh, if you'd like to find out more about that, listen to this. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. 
At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.